First of all, I just want to say, like, I'm so glad to be back because uh, I kind of feel like I've been gone for a little bit. So, um, you know, <laughs> I was here and I was happy. Let's get to it. Uh, so uh, I kind of want to start off with just sort of a recap. First of all, it's been a couple of weeks and a lot has happened in these last couple of weeks. And I'm going to try to cover a lot of ground, but maybe um, do so in a concise manner so that I don't bore uh, TF out of everybody. So it was reported uh, a week or so ago that Gabrielle Union was being let go from America's Got Talent. And that shocked a whole lot of people. Because, uh, one, it was both her and her co-host, um, Julianne, the other only other woman on the show that was being let go. All the men got to stay. Um, but within, I want to say, a few hours or so, it started to, reports started to surface that she had been raising concerns about the conditions that um, were, were there at, at, you know, the tapings of the show and the way that decisions were made around who gets to... Um, be in front of millions of people all over the country um, on a weekly basis. And and the suspicion was, was that a lot of the decisions or some of the decisions that were being made were, in fact, not inclusive. Um, and there was a specific incident, for instance, where, you know, Jay Leno, who had come to the show, actually had made a very racist comment about seeing a picture with Simon, Simon Cowell with some, with some dogs and, you know, Asians might eat it. Some, something ridiculous. Um, And so she had, you know, told people, hey, you need to go to HR, like, that's not cool. Um, And and so the the story was that there were a number of incidents similar to that to varying degrees where clearly um, she was the voice in the room um, and on those tapings that was attempting to advocate for others. And thus, this might be the reason why she was not invited back to to the show. Well, um, a lot of outcry and uh, a lot of tweets of support later, NBC agreed to meet with uh, Gabrielle and to discuss her issues as she had experienced them and just kind of get her her thoughts. And from one of her tweets, uh, apparently the conversation lasted for about five hours. No, no word yet as to like what the outcome will be. But it's kind of interesting to me because a couple of things happened. One, her her co-star that also wasn't invited back, Julianne Howe, uh, or Hugh Howe, whatever one it's, however it's pronounced. Um, she was like, "No, I'm good. You know, I got a couple more shows uh, to tape." And so she very much took the the route of like, "Listen, I'm good. I have my thing set up. I'm not going to co-sign with you." Though she later, uh, a couple a day or so ago. Um, was on a different show and was just like, yeah, I'm really proud of her. That's what we need. But I, but I'm also really proud of NBC because you know, look at them for coming to step to the table. the uh, The implication there is just like somehow the the corporate <laughs> the corporate office of NBC has nothing to do with the people who work for it, um, and so they kind of have to like show up and and do the arbitrary you know do the arbitration on behalf of um, or in spite of the people who should have done so and should have managed things manage things differently. And then even Terry Crews, he was like, you know, bye girl. Uh, you know, it's been great working with you. I got my job. I added that part. Um, but the thing is, is that this is actually not the first time 
someone of her caliber and stature has also had issues with NBC and, and in particular with America's Got Talent. Um, back in 2017, Nick Cannon, who used to host the show, announced that he was leaving via Facebook. And the reasons I is because he said that he was threatened with termination after he was making a racial joke during a, a Showtime like comedy series taping. And he was basically talking about just, you know, hey, you know, I'm 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 at NBC. I can't tell the jokes I used to tell now because people who show up to my shows are, are white people and I can't, you know, tell the, you know, the nigga jokes like I used to. Um, and apparently they got word of it and they were just like, that's not cool. And so uh, the thing is, is that, one, I do think that there is this very interesting state of the world where we have companies like NBC or even like, I think it was Facebook that I recorded reported about uh, the last episode and comments that were um, exposed by current and former members of the Facebook uh, employee population who were black. And they all kind of point to the same MO, which is that there is a corporate communications that is widely known, or at least widely, um, you know, I guess purported to, to be the way in which the company operates, which is one that values diversity and inclusion. And then there's the lived experience of that. And the lived experience of what is often um, advertised via these companies is quite dissonant from what is actually, um, or the lived experience of, of what people, you know, go through on a daily basis is actually quite dissonant from what is advertised to be the values of the company. And that's kind of crazy. And so what you see is, is that over and over again, um, people are kind of coming out and saying like, no, that's actually not the way this thing runs. And then you find these companies like, oh my God, I didn't know. What do you mean? We're going to do something about that or we'll look into it. The question becomes, well, what is preventing if you, in response to hearing these concerns, want to take this very public and proactive action, what is preventing you as, a, as an organization from doing so the first time when these things are reported to you, either to a manager or a supervisor or to the HR department, um, when others who are not people of color witness this? Is it is it just that no one ever says anything and the only way that you, the company, can find out about these things is if it's revealed via social media? Um, if that is the case, then I would suggest that that's a huge problem that is um, failing to be addressed by, and I think probably both of these companies have a huge, or at least a significant diversity and inclusion, um, you know, population of staff dedicated to doing that or resources dedicated to doing that or just a competent HR professional um, on the team. Now, also being an HR professional by trade, I can tell you, oftentimes this is the case. Like companies say they value something and then the lived experience of that is that, well, the manager is really valuable to us or well, the thing wasn't, that bad or well, the thing was probably brought out of proportion and maybe we can just come to some sort of agreement. You don't get the shock and outrage and proactive approach until it becomes um, publicized. And so I will say, you know, the fact that NBC was willing to go to um, essentially the, a meeting with, with Gabrielle for five hours um, lets you know that absent a public outcry of some sort, 
Um, these things will likely not get hashed out and also not get addressed. And there won't be the systemic change that you kind of need to prevent um, either these incidents from happening again or taking um, this level of uh, publicity for there to be um, some serious thought about how, how that goes. And so shout out to Gabrielle Union for, you know, being who she is without sort of like the public public's eye knowing about it and also um, being willing to continue to to reiterate her concerns once they were and being willing to, to talk with NBC about that. A um, couple things to note. Also, you know, SAG-AFTRA that represents her is now looking into it. Also curious to me why they don't do more of that. Um, but it's a thing that I, I, I start to think about more and more often. I had, I had sent a tweet um, I want to say the day before Thanksgiving, I was talking to my mom and she was like, oh, my God, have you heard about this? And, you know, look what they did. And so I had tweeted this, you know, tweet of support. And I was just like, listen, we got your back. You know, you're going to find a whole lot of, you know, black Thanksgiving conversations being had um, about that. And it, it got like a lot of retweets. But in particular, there was this uh, white woman who was like, you know, I also support you, Gabrielle, and I'm going to have some white, you know, Thanksgiving conversation about that, too. And I thought that was really interesting and cool because I was like, hey, like, let me um, let me explain to you why I categorized it as a black Thanksgiving conversation and not just like a Thanksgiving conversation. And I, I think there was a little bit of a, a disconnect. And so I was like, historically, Black people have existed in spaces, including today. Um, so as long as we've been on this continent, essentially, um, where we have been unable to have the kinds of thoughts publicly and conversations publicly that are true to our experience um, for fear of retribution, i.e. case in point, she just got fired. She just got fired with all these followers and, and, and with the metrics that she's had of success. Um, and with a company that is outspoken about its support um, of underrepresented people and people of color, um, and yet here we are. And so the reason why I said black conversations is that because we really just always can't have these out in the open, um, and that's the reason why I made that made that remark. Um, but it made me think about sort of just what happens for a lot of people, just a lot of people in general, right? Which is. And I'm, and I'm also reflecting on myself as an HR professional and as someone who, who is responsible for crafting the culture. We espouse ourselves to ideals of diversity, of inclusion, and yet the lived experience that most people have are dissonant. And the expectations that most people have when diversity and inclusion are in action who are, are not, let's say, coming from an underrepresented background is that the inclusion that they see is one that is devoid of any sort of cultural reference to prior discrimination. So if you think about like, for instance, Nick Cannon, he's making a very real cultural joke about, yeah, you know, nigga, I'm at this, you know, at NBC, I can't tell the jokes I used to tell because, you know, I got white people up in here in my shows now and they ain't used to that and I'm going to be on TMZ. And there's a message in that first and foremost, which is inclusion often requires, if not demands, whitewashing. You can join and sit at the table, but you need to leave your palette behind. Um, 
And your palette is offensive to me because it's based off of, you know, what was only available to you um, during slavery. No, you cannot adjust our menu. Like that's what having a seat at the table is experienced by a, a, for a lot of people. And yet there is a sort of indignant expectation that if you are reference, if you reference anything that either sheds light to that, then you are somehow um, engaging in behavior that is counterproductive and or um, you know dismissive of their good faith effort to to make a change. Um, and I think that's really, really bad. You know, that's that's sort of my like, you know, you should not have to whitewash culture that has had to cope with discrimination for hundreds of years um, in your effort to be more inclusive of other cultures. It's a reality. Um, I was having a conversation with some other professionals um, who are also black, and we were having this very deep conversation around, you know, should should like for instance a black employee resource group for a company have allies non-black folks at the table and in these meetings and there was a school of thought that says well you know you want to create a safe space for black people to just be black and not have to code switch and not have to put on your you know your good negro voice and there was this other school of thought that said no if they're going to come to our table and, and, and sit at our table then they should be willing and ready to hear these things and you start to kind of get to this place where there is the ideal state, right? Which is like, oh, if you're an ally and you're signing up to to join my company's or at least support my company's DNI, you know, efforts, then you should be ready for to hear realities that may not necessarily reflect your point of view or perspective. And that's the ideal state of things. And then there's the reality of folks who are like, but listen, we know them better than they know themselves. And although they may say that they support and understand and are, and are you know, gung-ho about doing this type of thing, um, when push comes to shove and truths begin to, to get aired out, they will become uncomfortable, and that uncomfortable will turn to hysteria and or um, anger and rejection. And I am not willing to risk my, you know, psychological safety and my employment because of the unknown temperament and or appetite that people have to hear things that don't reinforce their belief systems or hear things that aren't applause for them joining and signing up. Um, and so I think this is the thing that's, that just we will have to continue to, to work on, um, both as black people and, pe- and black people who are attempting um, to kind of move the needle day by day, but also the allies who say that they are, you know, for these values, but when push comes to shove, will reject it in a minute if the person's way of coping with whatever their life experience has been um, offends you for whatever reason. Next on the docket, so listen, uh, I was heartbroken and upset and pissed off uh, this week because Kamala Harris. Uh, exited the Democratic primary and is no longer running for uh, president of the United States. Um, and this comes, <laughs> this comes, what really, really pissed me the F off was that this comes um, during a week in which she had a number of like exposés on sort of like her campaign being run amok and a comms manager on her campaign, quote unquote, resigns and then leaks 
Her own letter of resignation, a scathing one about mismanagement of the campaign. And then she hops on the Michael Bloomberg uh, uh, train. And for a couple of reasons uh, in particular, well, let me just back up. So, you know, I lived in D.C., majored in political science before I left Howard. Like, I've worked on Capitol Hill. I understand how a lot of this shit works. And to be quite honest with you, even when I was working on the Hill in 2006, it was very interesting to me how people um, at the DSCC, and this is no shade to them, but it, it was very interesting to me how people at the DSCC thought about Barack Obama at the time. And when we were you know, campaigning every day of the year, who was going to prioritize sort of, you know, making sure that he got the right press, got the right fundraising for his potential um, re-election campaign. This is obviously before he announced he was going to run for president. But I'd already picked up on some things about how people get, you know, picked and chosen for, for what. It's also no surprise to me, um, having studied this stuff and um, sort of lived or at least been exposed to a part of that life, um, that the media tends to pick and choose who it wants to christen as sort of like the front runner and who they are actively going to shed a little bit of shade on. Um, and so that part isn't necessarily um, different. What is different is who ends up being the person that gets shaded during these types of events. And it's almost like, well, if you have a woman and she's a person of color and she is well-credentialed um, and, quite frankly, a front-runner, then let's make her the villain, right? Let's let's do the exposés on her campaign, how she's mismanaging things. Let, let's find a way to make her less, like, look less perfect. And so I was incredibly shocked by just the number of tweets and, just, and, and tweets from journalists who were actively investigating the conditions of her campaign. Meanwhile, how many other candidates have dropped out the race already? Meanwhile, in her lowest point, she's actually never trended lower than Michael Bloomberg. Um, and yet, she was the target for a lot, a lot of um, reporting about how bad of a manager she actually is. And for me, I think I was sort of just like, so this is what happens. They want to see you in a vulnerable state and are willing to sort of, you know, put that out there. And they want to torpedo your torpedo your campaign um, because they think that's what makes for good news. I, I asked the question, why do we feel the need when we find black people who are extra qualified to put extra targets on their back, right? Like we can get behind sort of like the black horse underdog. Oh, wouldn't it be good if they were able to be a success story because it makes us as Americans look good and feel better about ourselves. But when it's someone who actually is just crushing it on her own, like a Kamala Harris it's like, oh, so you trying to get greedy, huh? So you think you're just going to run every, so you just think you're perfect? It's almost as if, like, you know, I, I didn't get that tax write-off, so I'm not going to donate to you. That's that's the way I kind of feel like it, it kind of goes. It's just like, y'all really, really want her to look bad because you think she looks too good. Um, and so, needless to say, uh, you know, after the the reporting and sort of the leaking of that comms manager's 
um, resignation. I was really, really pissed off when I heard that she was leaving um, the campaign trail. And meanwhile, Buttigieg, despite the fact that on every occasion he is attempting to slide that card um, and, and be as privileged as he can possibly be and, and, and really fumbling while doing so, it seems that people are attempting to make the case for him despite all odds. In fact, despite himself, um, versus really call him out for for his gaffes. Um, and then I see like a, a Julian Castro, who, you know, I support, uh, I think the guy's great, who is struggling for attention and has, has also has been a mayor. Like it, it just is, it's reinforcing what we black people often talk about in our barbershops, the nail salon, and, and also these black Thanksgivings, which is like, you know what? As much as people want to say it's fair, it ain't fair. Um, and we need to to stop. And we, you know, black people are no longer going to continue to make you feel good about yourselves and not tell you it actually ain't fair. And you don't get to give yourself a high five um, or a pat on the back um, because you really, really want to believe it is um, because that's what enables you to to sleep at night. So um, we'll see. We'll see what comes of it. I, I'm again. I'm still rooting for Julian Castro as my front runner. Um, you know, say what you want, but I think he is an incredible candidate. Um, I've really followed his politics, and I am really, really pleased by the ways in which he tackles very, very tough issues, which shouldn't be tough. They should just be issues. But because um, so many people react to prioritizing. Um, or just concerns that for so long go um, unheeded that particularly impact people of color um, and p- people who are underrepresented um, by any sort of demographic. I-, I just think it's great that he's doing that. So um, shout out to him. Uh, I'm still hopeful. I'm still hopeful that Kamala will be in a cabinet um, in a couple years, but uh, we will we will see about that. So this this week, uh, Harlem Capital, which uh, for those of you who don't know, John Henry, uh, and he has partners, but uh, John Henry in particular has a show on Vice. Um, I think it's called Hustle. Uh, he's someone who he's he's I think Afro Cuban, Dominican, um, Afro Latin um, kid. He he grown ass man. I should say not kid. Uh, he's a grown ass man. He just raised forty million dollars, so he's a grown ass man. Uh, his, yeah, his venture capital firm, firm just raised 40 million, huge, huge win, um, for him and his team. Very, very happy for him. I, I've seen, <laughs> I've seen a whole lot of VCs popping off the mouth like lately this week, um, which has been so shocking. If you just want to recap, go to my Twitter feed at Carly Swanson, um, to see what I'm talking about. But it kind of looks like the wheels are coming off the bus on the VC, you know, malarkey campaign tour. Like it just, it kind of looks like people are starting to say you all have the same lingo that really doesn't solve for anything, but it makes you all look and feel smart. And we have been buying into it for so long, um, despite, and now that we're seeing like the WeWorks and others who are now struggling or, you know, just the other day, um, the founder and CEO of Away, the I, I guess you would call it a tech-enabled <laughs> uh, suitcase uh, company, 
was popping off at the mouth on Slack to her team. And you saw a few Vs. He's like, no, no, no. This is exactly how you build a startup. And people are like, listen, y'all don't know that about nothing. You, you may know how to give people money. And by chance, uh, they are able to flood the market with that money and dominate because they just run people out of town, so to speak. Um, but you are not inherently the saviors that you've painted yourselves to be. I said this in a tweet as well. So, you know, feel free to reference that if you're wondering where I'm headed with all this. Um, but I myself am kind of tired of the we are saviors because we're rich and it kind of feels like a lot of other people are as well. But, you know, all that being said, uh, I'm, I'm really happy for for John Henry, uh, his team at Harlan Capital. I hope they do great things. Um, and, and I'm pretty sure that they will. And I'm pretty sure that we will be able to follow him and them as they make investments, which, which again, um, my, my sort of like hedging is, is that they end up doing some stuff with, with people who are really committed to making a lot of uh, structural change and um, opening up new pathways for success for people who otherwise probably wouldn't. Um, and, and not just sort of like enabling the well to do to get incrementally, you know, more convenient resources and, and solutions for things that are probably already fine, but um, we just want, we just want that much more uh, convenience and success. Well, that's it. Like that, that's the podcast for this week. Um, if I were to kind of give you a look into sort of the future, I, I want to be a little bit more thoughtful about just documenting my own process and my own journey as I, uh, you know, go on this podcast and, and start to open up some other channels for for media and content for people who are looking to build their careers, they're building businesses, they're solopreneurs, um, they're transitioning into new arenas and areas, and they kind of just need that extra bit of insight on either what to pay attention to or, you know, what to, how to organize themselves and others to get stuff done. Um, which has really kind of been my MO for a, a number of years now, more than a decade. We won't tell you how long exactly. Um, and so, yeah, like this is this is fun for me. I hope that it is getting something. I hope that you're getting something out of it. If not, please let me know. Uh, and, and until next time, peace. Mm-hmm.